I'm speaking from, from the section 18 verse 1 down to 19 verse 10. And uh, the heart of this, the best way to understand this section of the scripture as an overview is it's a tale of two women. On the one hand, you've got Mystery Babylon, who's portrayed as a prostitute, who lives in a lap of luxury and colludes with the powerful, the rich and powerful of the world uh, to, in corruption and uh, indulgence and luxury. And the contrast to her is the Bride of Christ, who appears on the scene uh, just in the very few, last few verses of our passage. Uh, last week, Ashley, um, I, I called this initially Babylon Part 2, because he looked at what the previous chapter said about Babylon. Uh, now we're going to think about these two women and contrast them and work out who they represent. So the start of the passage, as Elsie read, pictures the destruction of Babylon, the utter destruction of Babylon. And certainly Babylon in the scriptures is always code for the world in opposition to God. So if we think back right to the start of the Bible, when the human beings got together and tried to build their own kingdom, they built the Tower of Babel, right? And, uh, and God scatters people uh, by giving them different languages so they can't work together anymore. And then if we go further in the, New in the Old Testament, the exile in Babylon was, a, was an absolutely central event in the experience of the Old Testament Jewish people. That when they were cast out of the land and taken to Babylon, so much of the Old Testament comes out of that experience of being God's people in exile amongst people who did not share their faith, who had conquered them militarily and destroyed all the symbols of God's blessing in their lives and enslaved them and humiliated them. And the Old Testament is often then, even long after the event, picturing Babylon as all that the world represents in opposition to God. And then by the time we get to Revelation, of course Babylon in terms of a, a military power, its literal strength is long gone. And John is using it as code for the Roman Empire, who were the people in, that was his reality. Um, Rome, the Roman Empire which persecuted the church and stood in opposition to the things of God. And he says, in his reality, the day is coming when it will be destroyed. And in our day, what is Babylon? Well, we kind of live in this global world where you switch on the news and several Babylons get piped down to you. Is, is, is Babylon today Putin's Russia? Is Babylon today China? Is Babylon today the West? And the answer to this is, it is all of those cultures insofar as they stand in opposition to the purposes of God. And there is no culture that is entirely bad, and there is no culture that is entirely good. But what we're engaging with here is prophetic writing, which is always stirring up, aimed at the emotions and stirring up deep commitment to God and trying to call people out of spiritual lethargy 
into spiritual dynamism. So uh, perhaps I could have the next slide up. If he was talking today, perhaps this is the kind of image he would create in people's minds. This world around you is temporary. The cultures and the empires of this world are temporary. They cannot stand forever. And when they oppose God, this is their future. And John pictures the empire of his day just destroyed. And he's doing this symbolically. Every empire that has ever been comes and goes. They have a life cycle. They either get conquered from without or they atrophy from within or a combination of the two. No empire can stand forever. Some have tried. Eternal Rome, the Third Reich, was going to last for a thousand years and it was all over. It caused utter chaos and misery for people while it, while it existed, but it was all over in a matter of years. And you name it, all the kings of this world, all the, all the rulers, all the powers, all the authorities, they are temporary. They can do great grievous damage to people. But here is Rome in the context. She persecutes uh, the people of God, we are told. And as a result, God will judge her. So this is Mystery Babylon. And when she falls, we see two different reactions. The kings and the merchants and the sailors, next slide please, are pictured as being distraught. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind, made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, you name it. This is a consumerist culture. You want it, we'll get it for you. You have to pay. As long as you can pay, you can have anything you want. Instant, it's all there for you. The picture of the prostitute who offers you everything now without restraint, as long as you can pay. And so the wealthy who can pay, the merchants, the kings, uh, the sailors who go around the world making money on all this trade, they lament because the system which prospered them, which benefited them, is broken. But there's an, another reaction. God's reaction. The reaction from heaven. We read in 18 verse 20. Rejoice over this, you, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Insofar as the Babylons of this world oppress those who stand for God's kingdom values of truth and justice and fairness and kindness and compassion and honour and integrity and generosity, 
and those who will speak truth to power and hold a mirror up to those who in corruption maintain themselves uh, at the expense of others, they rejoice over the fall of this corrupt, self-indulgent, spiritually disastrous culture. In 19, 1 to 6, there is the rejoicing of the great multitude, that's all God's people, over the fall of Babylon, this corrupt world system. And there is worship of God for his judgment of her. This is problematic, right? I mean, if London were destroyed in a nuclear bomb blast, oh, well, actually, that's a bad example because we, none of us would be here. Um, if, if, if there was some terrible decline of the West, how would you feel about that? Well, I think to a certain extent, it depends on whether you're a winner or a loser. If you were in, if you had the misfortune to be a Christian living in Nazi Germany, what are you supposed to feel at the end of the war when Germany is in ruins? Are you supposed to feel sad because this is your country? Or are you supposed to feel glad because it's put an end to the wickedness of the Nazis? And the same question can be asked, you know, in a hundred different ways for almost every culture. And the truth is that the challenge for us as we read this stuff is, essentially what John is saying is if you do well out of Mystery Babylon, of course you're going to mourn her passing. But if you do badly out of Mystery Babylon, as the most of the Christians did, because they were generally at this stage taken from the poorer classes, and they'd suffered persecution, sometimes very cruel persecution, it was very natural for them to think, thank goodness this wickedness is over and God has brought it to an end. We'll think more about this in a moment or two, but just want to point out to you at the end of this passage that we're looking at today, uh, chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, the passing, the destruction of mystery Babylon clears the way for another woman to emerge. And she is the church dressed as the bride of Christ. Babylon is out of the way, this prostitute, and in her place emerges the bride of Christ, chaste and pure, and ready to marry Christ and be established for all eternity. Just a point to make here. You know, this theme of the church pictured as a bride runs right through the New Testament. And I um, just want to, to make a comment about it, really, which is that if you're a Christian, whether you're single or married in this lifetime, you are engaged. You are be becoming a Christian is essentially, in, in metaphorical terms, being engaged to the Lord Jesus. And he is not a fiancé who is going to break the engagement. And so, getting, uh, if you'll forgive the indelicacy of it, getting into bed with Babylon is a real betrayal of what the future really holds. All right. Let's reflect on this prophetic call for a moment, because as I, as I said earlier, this is not... There's other parts of the scriptures which are reasoned argument. 
You know, I think one of my favourite passages from the Old Testament, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There are, there are passages in the scripture which are reasoned argument. Paul's letters, for example. This is not that. This is prophetic call. It is assertion. It's painting the world to a certain extent in black and white. When we all recognise there's actually some shades of grey. And, and that's not being denied here. But it's trying to get into the hearts of people like you and me and, and really force us to think and reflect and pray about the extent to which we are radically committed to God's kingdom purposes and the extent to which we are colluding with a corrupt world system that has a very, has a temporary future. And I, I suggest to you that if there was a one-line soundbite that you could take from these passages, this section of scripture, it would be this, don't fall in love with the prostitute, which is just great advice, just generally speaking. Falling in love with a prostitute really bad idea. But in this context, if you fall in love with Babylon, then you're falling in, it can only end badly. And, you know, like any prostitute, she's going to try and present herself in as appealing a way as possible. Don't be fooled. And particularly for us, most of us, if not all of us, are definitely amongst those who benefit from Babylon, who benefit from Western, Western uh, consumerism. Be careful. Your identity is not to live in the lap of luxury, enjoying all the benefits of Babylon. If there is a danger for contemporary Western Christians, it is that we want we want the prostitute and we want to be the bride of Christ. And you can't do that. That's what's being said here. Now, the phrase, a very important phrase in chapter 18 is found in verse 4, where the voice from heaven, that is God speaking, says, come out of her, my people. Now, those of you who know your Bibles well will know that that is a quote that we find in the Old Testament and it is, a, it is a, it's the word spoken to the exiles in Babylon when they are given a promise that one day God will lead them back to the promised land, out of Babylon. He says, come out of them. And, and essentially, what the prophet is saying to those exiles is, look, you have to live in this culture. Just remember that your future is not here. It is to go back there. So whilst you have to live in Babylon, remember that one day you will leave Babylon and don't let Babylon in here. That is essentially what Isaiah the prophet is saying in 48.20 and Jeremiah in 58. And interestingly, in the New Testament, Paul draws on this prophetic theme uh, from the Old Testament when he's talking to the Corinthians about the danger of idolatry. He says, don't go to the temples and worship there. Come out of her. Now, for the sake of balance, there's another theme that emerges to the exiles while they are in Babylon, and that is Jeremiah, who says, while you live there, seek the prosperity of the city. Now, are these two things contradictory? I suggest not. What, you're, what we're being told as we live in exile in Babylon is that we should seek to be good citizens. 
We should seek the best for the culture that we live in, but we must not fall in love with it. We must remember that it is temporary. Now, if Babylon stands for the world system in opposition to God, um, then let's think about some other biblical themes that hit on this, because I want to suggest to you it's a very wide biblical theme, it's just it's expressed here in very prophetic, very stark terms. Let's think of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able to discern God's will. What Paul is saying is you're living in Babylon, the world system that is in opposition to God. Don't take on all its messages. When you switch on the TV, be careful. Because a whole load of stuff is going to come your way that are the messages of Babylon, the thinking of Babylon. Be careful, have your critical thinkings on, be prayerful, ask the Spirit to help you so that you can see what's good and what's bad. When you surf the net, be careful, Babylon is right there, just a few clicks away. Don't start falling in love with Babylon. She's not your future. But we're also called to be salt and light in the world as Christians. So what's not being recommended is just escapology. We're not all called, sorry, escapism. That was a word I meant, escapology. That'd be an odd thing for a pastor to recommend people. Uh, escapism. Uh, we're not called to, um, to go off into the desert and live as hermits. We're called to live in the city, in Babylon, and seek its prosperity. But we are also, and prosperity, by prosperity, I don't mean profit and wealth at any cost. What I mean is it's well-being. We are called to be those who act as salt and light. But the easiest thing in the world is for the salt to lose its saltiness. The easiest thing in the world is as we live in Babylon, for Babylon to get in here. And then, what does Jesus say we're good for? Nothing really because we can't live out our calling. All right, well, let's try and evaluate this culture that we live in, because this is where the rubber hits the road for us, really. Can I have the next slide, please? So let's just think about the Western world. That's the version of Babylon that we live in. Think of already underlined the seriousness of the issue. We have to live in an environment that is, to a greater or lesser extent, ungodly. And our calling is not to fall in love with the prostitute, is to remember our future, is to be the bride of Christ, and to seek the prosperity of the city while we live here, its well-being. And I find it helpful to sort of, as I look out on the culture I am in, to ask three questions. What is good? to be affirmed and encouraged, and as far as I'm able to go on sustaining it. What is bad, just flat out bad, and to be rejected, and for me to not only reject but encourage other people to do? And what is in the middle category of what I've said is there, what can be redeemed? Things that aren't great, but I could make better. Well, what is good? Let's start with the positive. This is my best effort, right? You need to answer these questions yourselves and reflect deeply on it because the answers you give to this question are going to be the answers to what you think Jesus is asking you to do and how Jesus is asking you to live in order to be the bride of Christ 
uh, or sorry, the fiancé of Christ with a future, an eternal future in relationship with him. Western culture does have a tradition of truth-telling, I think. I'm not saying it's perfect. <laughs> it's definitely not perfect. But we have a society in which if political leaders are caught lying, they are expected to resign. Now, we could spend the next 15 minutes just reflecting on how, that's, how we're doing with that, uh, and perhaps not as well as we could be, for sure, right? But there is still an emphasis on truth in our culture. We have law courts, which they're not perfect, of course they're not. But I think if I was going to be accused of a crime I hadn't committed, I think you, the UK would be amongst the best place in the world to be accused of that crime. You'd have the best chance of getting justice. You'd have a fairly good chance of getting justice, I think. Um, we have a culture in which there is a great deal of emphasis on the protection of the individual and their freedom. And broadly, I see that as a very good thing. If you'd like to just have a comparison, I suggest you go to Russia or China and start defining yourself as a person who wants to live in a way different to how the state wants you to live. And you'll soon realise that we enjoy a great deal of freedom in the West. And those freedoms are protected. And particularly for us Christians, that's important. I am free to make criticisms of the state as a Christian, and I can broadly be pretty confident no one's going to come knocking on my door and take me off to prison. That is not the case in, in, in other areas of the world. I think, in general, Western people um, have a genuine desire to be kind to others. I think it goes to an extreme sometimes, and we're all terribly protective of each other's feelings. Possibly it's gone too far. But I think it's true that our culture is generally quite a kind culture and quite respectful. We could go on. These things are good, and wherever we see them, we should reinforce them and, and encourage them. And then maybe many other things that we could say. We have a functioning welfare state, right? It's not perfect. But if you have no source of income, the state will ensure, by collecting taxes from the rest of us, that they'll do their best to ensure that you have some kind of basic living standards. Go to some parts of the world where they can't afford that or they choose not to do it. People just starve. Street children. Their bodies are collected up in the morning each, each day. We have a lot to be thankful for. Our NHS should declare an interest. I'm a beneficiary of the NHS in more ways than one. We could go on. What is good? What must be rejected? And here my heart is heavy mentioning some of these things. I, I'm very loath to mention it because I'm aware of the powerful emotions it can stir. I think the single thing I find most grievous about Western culture, culture it's only my own personal view, is the many hundreds of thousands of children that never see the light of day. I'm aware of the difficulties that some women find themselves in, and in no way do I wish to demonise anyone who's taken a choice to have an abortion. Jesus can forgive that just as he can forgive everything else. And in certain cases, there are horrible choices people face, and people deserve our compassion. But when... when when abortions take place just to avoid the inconvenience that a child will bring in to someone's life, that is heartrending. Whatever must God think of it. Notwithstanding what I said about truth-telling earlier, 
we have a culture that is losing its moorings in the truth. And increasingly, truth is defined as my truth or your truth, a sense that there's any kind of objective truth. People seem, you know, to pay, seem at liberty to play fast and loose with that. Let me tell you, they're going to have a rude awakening because Jesus is the truth and nothing that is a lie ever comes from him. We live, as always, but in our culture, with great levels of inequality. How must it look if you're at the bottom of the heap? That's hard for most of us here to, to get a handle on, because we're not. If you're at the bottom of the heap, how does this society look? And some people are running companies and paying themselves extravagant salaries, enable them to live in absolute luxury, whilst people in those same companies are earning an absolute pittance, not enough to live on. Now, when I say this kind of stuff, some people assume I'm a communist, or at the very least, some dodgy socialist. Um, I'm actually not, but I still think that that is completely wrong. People should be paid a reasonable salary. And those of you who are bosses in the workplace, this is part of your role as a Christian to contend for the poor, the poorly paid members of your company, and to put their interests first. It's important. God, the, um, Wesley used to refer to the poor. He didn't call them the poor, he called them Christ's poor. And he was drawing on the themes of Matthew 25, where Jesus said, when you feed the poor, you feed me. They are specially precious to Jesus. Our responsibility as Christians is to look for their interests. And what must Jesus think of a, a company or a culture which rewards people with such horrendous disparity? I find it hard not to look at what Western consumerism is doing and essentially see us as raping the earth of its natural resources that God has put, has put there. It, it, productivity and, uh, and, and, and economic growth is basically a machine to get as much out of the earth as possible, as, as quickly and efficiently as possible, and, and turn it into goods for people to buy, usually on money that they don't have, so they borrow it. Now that is, you know, I'm in prophetic mode for a moment, forgive me. But there is a major problem here in both debt, financial debt, and also the, unsustain, the unsustainable levels of exploitation of the earth, we are mortgaging the future. Future generations will pay for the way that we behave. And then there's the sexual consumerism, which is rampant in our culture. We are living with the repercussions of the sexual revolution in the 60s, some of which was good, but it has created a culture in which sex has become politicised and everyone uh, is told again and again it is your right to behave sexually pretty much however you want. There are one or two frameworks in place. And if you even question it, you're at best a dinosaur and at worst a bigot. And nobody is allowed to ask the question, what are the consequences for children, large numbers of whom are not any longer in contact or, or being brought up by their biological parents, which is a massive disadvantage in life. 
in all sorts of ways. Nobody counts the cost to society in terms of broken relationships and what that does to people. We've made an idol of sex. Well, I'm sure we could, we could say more. Which, what of all this can be redeemed? What needs to be rejected as Christians? We need to think prayerfully about this. And we need to be very careful, brothers and sisters, because most of us are among the ones who have done well. We're really, if we're honest with the kings and the merchants, we've done well in this society. And Jesus is calling us to remember that this, is, this society is not our future. And for many, perhaps the majority, even in the West, this is not a particularly great place to be. Finally, could I have the last slide? As I mentioned, the judgment, the future judgment of Babylon, and one day God will strike down world systems that are in op opposition to him forever, clears the way for the emergence of the bride of Christ. The bride is a very powerful image, I think. It's sort of almost an archetypal image of purity, of goodness, of hope and possibility. I don't know, I, I mean, I've heard people say that little girls, you know, they're envisaging this day from a young age. I have no idea, I wasn't ever a little girl. So you ladies, you're going to have to work out for yourself how this image impacts you. From, a man, from, from my perspective, it pictures a, a new day opening when a new commitment full of purity and, and, and love and faithfulness um, open up. One day we're told when Babylon has gone, the bride will emerge. It's a picture of the church. I just want to close by pointing out to you what the bride is wearing. The bride, according to this, is wearing fine linen, bright and clean. In our day, um, it would be white to symbolise purity, sexual purity. And, um, and so the adornment of the bride, it says here, stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Whilst we wait for our wedding day to Jesus, as we're living in Babylon, we're called to adorn ourselves. Jesus will forgive our sin if we come before him, but he wants to do more than that. He wants to start dressing us in fine clothing, ready for our marriage to him. And that metaphorically is our good deeds. So as we live in Babylon, and as we take care prayerfully to avoid allowing Babylon in, we seek the well-being of the city around us. We seek through good deeds, through truth, through righteousness, through justice, through contending for the things that Jesus would contend for, whatever the price, we adorn ourselves in white, ready for our bridegroom. May God give you and me discernment as you go out day by day, you meet people when you're in the workplace, that you would be salt and light where you are, adorning yourself with righteous deeds, for Jesus' sake and out of worship to him, helping people see the truth, helping address unfairness and un injustice wherever you are, 
being kind and compassionate in Jesus' name, particularly to the poor. If you are wealthy, sharing what you have appropriately so that others are blessed and others can see Jesus, hopefully so that they themselves will join and become part of the bride of Christ themselves. Let's start each day prayerfully, reviewing what's to come in that day and asking for wisdom to avoid the spiritual hazards of living in Babylon and instead to set an example to those around us. May God bless you.